questions like, can a Christian use lethal force to defend himself and his family? Can a Christian serve in the military? Can a Christian be a police officer? Now, some people would answer no to each of these questions, and there are some well-respected preachers in the Lord's church who believe that it would be a sin for a Christian to do these things. Now, they would argue that it's okay for a non-Christian to do these things, but it would be wrong for a child of God. Now, this morning, I gave you four reasons why I believe the Bible teaches that a Christian has the right to protect himself and his family and his community and his country. Reason number one is based on Luke chapter 22, where Jesus told his disciples to buy a sword when they go out and preach. Clearly, the reason was for self-defense. Reason number two is based on 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, and that is because of the God-given role that we have to protect our families. Reason number three is based on what John the Baptist said to the soldiers that were converted. That is, he did not tell them to give up soldiering, but he told them to be fair and just as soldiers. Reason number four is because there are not separate laws for Christians and non-Christians. Whatever applies to one applies to the other. Now tonight, we're going to talk about the pacifist position, and I want to introduce this by telling you that there are basically two pacifist positions. The first one is what I'm going to call the extreme position, the strict position, or the complete pacifist position. And by this, what I mean is it teaches that all killing is wrong. People who hold this position would picket at the execution of a murderer or a rapist or a child molester, and they would argue that the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. They take that to mean that all killing is wrong. In reality, the Bible does not forbid all killing. The Bible forbids murder. And there is a very clear dis distinction in the Word of God be between murder and killing. All murder is wrong, not all killing is wrong. And so we need to make this definition and this statement as we start this discussion. Now listen carefully. Murder is the unlawful, unauthorized taking of human life. That definition is important. Let me say that again. Murder is the unlawful, unauthorized taking of human life. Now, I've tweaked that because I used to define murder this way, the unlawful taking of innocent human life. But I've tweaked it now and I've taken out the word innocent because I believe that there could be a situation, and as a matter of fact, regularly there are situations in which innocent life might be taken and it not be murder. Let me give you an example of that. Consider when the United States dropped the bomb on Nagasaki or Hiroshima. Thousands of innocent people died, but I would contend that that was not murder. It was an authorized action based on Romans chapter 13, where the Lord gives the government the right to take action for the overall arching good of protecting society. And so murder is the unauthorized taking of human life. When you talk about capital punishment, capital punishment is killing but it is not murder. In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, God laid out a timeless moral principle in which he said this, 
Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. That is, God requires the murderer to be put to death by his fellow man. Why? Because it is that serious to take the life of another human being that he said he is to be punished by death. Now, is such an execution killing? Yes. Is it murder? No. Now, that tells me there is such a thing as right killing and there is such a thing as wrong killing. That was true in the Old Testament. It is also true in the New Testament. Now, there is a second pacifist position that uh, I would call a limited pacifist position. This category doesn't believe that it is always wrong to kill or that it's always wrong to be a policeman or a soldier or the person who throws the switch on the electric chair. This person believes it is only wrong if you are a Christian. Now, once again, there's a very serious implication that comes along with this, and that is it suggests that God has two laws, one for the child of God and one for those who are not children of God. Brother Terry Hightower is a gospel preacher, a man I respect. He wrote a book called The Christian Policeman, and he has also debated the subject of pacifism, this is how he lays out the argument, and since this is not a debate, I'm going to simplify it, but basically he says this, if the Bible teaches that all men are amenable to the law of Christ, and it does, and the law of Christ teaches that it is possible for a non-Christian to take the life of an evildoer, such as a policeman, and it does teach that, then the law of Christ also teaches it is possible for a Christian to take the life of an evildoer, as in a policeman. And he laid that out in a logical syllogism, and it can be defended from the Bible. All right, this is what I, I want to do now. I want to talk about some of the arguments that are made by those who hold to the pacifist position. There are some gospel preachers, some Christians, who are very conscientious about this. They believe that the Bible teaches that it is wrong to ever take the life of another human being, even to defend the innocent, even to serve in the military, even as a police officer, and they have biblical principles that they believe defend this. I disagree, and I want to examine their reasons now in light of the Scripture. Here's reason number one. Argument number one, they say, is the Bible says, love your enemies. Matthew 5, is sometimes cited where the Bible says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Brother H. Leo Bowles, who is one of the writers of the Gospel Advocate Commentary Series, he wrote this, Love your enemies. Men do not love their enemies when they're trying to kill them. Therefore, war nullifies this principle, and therefore it is opposed to Christianity. Brother Bowles said it is wrong for a Christian to be a soldier because of the principle in Matthew 5:44 to love your enemies. But my question would be this, why should I love why should my love for my enemy supersede my love for my family? Should I just sit idly by and allow my family or some helpless victim to be mutilated or murdered or raped? 
You know, some other passages immediately come to my mind, like Matthew 22 and verse 39, where the Bible says, I'm to love my neighbor as myself. If I see my neighbor being injured or murdered, and I have to take lethal action to protect them, am I going to sit back and say, well, you know, the Bible says I'm supposed to love my enemy, and so I can't do anything. I also have to love my neighbor. Matthew 7 and verse 12, the golden rule that I'm to treat my neighbor I'm to treat others as I want to be treated. How could I claim to obey Matthew 22, 39 and Matthew 7, 12 while not taking necessary action to protect the victim? Surely that's not how I would want to be treated. In essence, now listen carefully to this. In essence, by not helping the victim, I'm taking the side of the attacker, right? By not helping the victim, I'm taking the side of the attacker. Should I love the murderer more than the one who is beating, the, more than the one who is being beaten to death? Brethren, I really think that there is a basic misunderstanding about love in this argument. I want you to think about Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. Did God love them? Yes, he loved them, but he killed them as punishment in that chapter. You see, love does not preclude punishment. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 17, God commanded the children of Israel, He said, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thy heart, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And yet, just a few verses later in chapter 20 and verse 2, He said, If any of your brethren worship Molech, He said, You are to stone them to death with stones. And so, what He said is, You're supposed to love them, but... If they worship false gods, they are to be stoned to death. The point is, love did not preclude punishment. As a matter of fact, love sometimes includes or demands punishment. All right? Here is a second argument, and that is that Christians are forbidden to retaliate. It's sometimes pointed out that in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, the Bible says Christians are not supposed to take revenge Vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus says the Lord. Furthermore, it says that Christians are to live peaceably with all men and that we are to repay no man evil for evil. Well, can this passage rightfully be used to show that a non-Christian can serve in the military, a non-Christian can be a police officer, a non-Christian can take life, but a Christian can't? Of course not. It, it doesn't teach that. Whatever this verse means to Christians, it also means to non-Christians. And so, think about this. Is it the case that Christians are not to take revenge, but it's okay for non-Christians to take revenge? No, that, it's not teaching that. Is it the case that Christians have to live peaceably, but God doesn't expect non-Christians to live peaceably? No, it's not teaching that. Whatever this passage means to Christians, it also means to non-Christians. And so what does this passage mean when it says we're not to take revenge, but vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord? Brethren, what it means is this. I, as a child of God, I am not to seek personal revenge. That is, none of us should have the I'll fix you mentality. When someone does me wrong... I'm not to sit back and say, I'm going to take personal retaliation. You don't do that. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, after he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, 
just a few verses later, he goes on to talk about one of the ways in which he repays evil, and that is the government. He tells us that the government is the tool that he uses to punish evil. He says that they are my ministers to punish evil. So let me put this in the form of an example. Let's say that my neighbor is drunk and he's disorderly, and I come outside and my neighbor is throwing a brick at my car. You know, I could decide I'm going to punish him for that. I'm going to take revenge on him for that. That's what the Bible says I'm not to do. God says vengeance is mine. How is God going to punish that evildoer? Well, he does it when I pick up the phone and I call the police because he says they are ministers of God to punish the evildoer. And so God carries out revenge. It's not upon me to carry out personal retaliation. Same thing is true of Matthew 5 and verse 39 where the Bible says that we're to turn the other cheek. That does not mean that if people attack me physically that I just have to take it and I can't defend myself. People use it that way, but that's not what it teaches. We know that because Jesus told his own disciples that you can get a sword to defend yourself. You don't have to just be abused without self-defense. All right? A third argument that is made in favor of the pacifist position is that Christians are not to be involved in, quote, carnal warfare. Prince, I want to suggest to you there is not a passage in the Bible that says this. There is no passage that says Christians are not to be involved in carnal warfare. And if a Christian is not to be involved in carnal warfare, then neither is the non-Christian, because the same law applies to all of us. As I was studying for this lesson, I was reading the writings of some people who hold the pacifist position, and I saw a lot of quotes that said things like this. Our battle is a spiritual battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6. Matthew 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world, etc., etc. A lot of passages like that. But none of those passages are stating what they say they're stating. These passages are simply passages that relate to the Lord's spiritual kingdom. You see, God's spiritual kingdom is not comprised of physical wars. We don't make converts into the spiritual kingdom at the end of a sword. Our battle against Satan is not a physical battle, it's a spiritual battle. He's not a physical dragon, he's a spiritual dragon. We use the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 17, not the physical sword in our spiritual lives. But you see, none of those passages preclude me serving in the military. None of those passages preclude me being a policeman. If I serve in the military, my spiritual battles are still going to be spiritual battles. You know, a Christian man will sometimes have to take off his belt and spank his son. Sometimes he'll have to engage in corporal punishment. Is somebody going to come along and say, hey, you can't physically spank him because we wrestle not against flesh and blood? That wouldn't be a valid thing to say. Having to physically engage in physical punishment against my son in no way contradicts passages that talk about sp the spiritual battle. And in the same sense, serving in the military is functioning as a minister of God for good. The Lord condemns us using the sword to advance the church, but He authorizes civil authorities to use the sword 
for secular and social purposes. Argument number four. It is said that if we can't fight in the Lord's kingdom, which is the greater kingdom, how in the world can we think that we can fight in the physical kingdoms of this earth? Well, these are two different arguments. It's two different types of kingdoms. The spiritual kingdom only allows spiritual fighting, and the physical kingdom requires physical or carnal fighting. The two arguments are not parallel to one another. It's not a valid argument. Number five, the golden rule argument. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, Jesus said, Whatever you want men to do to you, do you also unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, please don't grow weary of me saying this, but Matthew 7, 12 applies to the Christian and it applies to the non-Christian. And so if the golden rule precludes Christians from punishing evildoers, then it also would preclude non-Christians from punishing evildoers, which it would end up meaning you can't have any policemen, you can't have any soldiers, you can't have any judges, you can't have anyone who would pull the switch uh, on the electric chair. And so think about this also. If someone is going to reason we're to treat others the way we want to be treated, therefore the golden rule won't allow me to punish an evildoer, what if we applied that same reasoning to people who are in prison? We could think, well, people in prison don't want to be in prison, and so according to the golden rule, we're going to have to let them out of prison. You see, that's fallacious reasoning. We have to understand that the golden rule doesn't require us to allow evil to go unchecked. Foy Wallace wrote this. He said, that puts the golden rule to working in reverse. It commits the golden rule to protecting the wrongdoer and deserting the victim. It forces the teachings of Christ to aid the evildoer, and it makes the Sermon on the Mount a Bill of Rights for criminals. I think that's well said. Here's the next one. Number six. This one's a little bit complicated, but I want you to listen carefully to this. Those who hold the pacifist position will sometimes argue that Romans chapter 13 makes a distinction between the Christian and the government. They would say that there's a lot of you Christian, they the government. You the Christian, they the government. And so their point is that Christians are not included when he talks about the government. And so you the Christians, they the government, meaning a Christian can't be considered a part of the government. I would suggest to you that the language of Romans 13 could have been written to a congregation that had Roman soldiers, and it would have read exactly the same. This argument does not stand. In fact, the contrast here is not between the government and Christians. The contrast is between individuals and the corporate entity of the government. How do I know that? Listen to Romans 13 and verse 1. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. What he is contrasting is each individual versus the government. And what is written to every soul applies to Christians and not non-Christians. Brethren, the fact of the matter is, nowhere in the Bible are there separate laws for Christians and non-Christians with regard to the roles that they can serve in the government or with regard to self-defense. Now, 
I want to talk about some implications of the pacifist position. Implication number one, if a Christian steps in and uses lethal force, that is, they have to kill someone, if a Christian steps in and uses lethal force to prevent a murder or a rape, then the Christian is committing a sin equivalent to the murder that he prevented. Because they're saying, if he killed someone, he is just as guilty as the murderer. Surely we see that those things are not on the same level. Surely we can understand that. Implication number two. If the police sin when they protect us, then we sin when we call the police. Why would that be? Because we are doing it through their extension. We are saying that they sin, therefore if I call them, I'm calling upon them to sin. That would be an implication of this position. Number three, if the pacifist position is right, that if a policeman is on his way to be baptized and he sees a murderer about to kill some children, he could pull out his gun and he could shoot them, shoot that murderer, and he would be a hero. But if he sees them after he has been baptized and he pulls out his gun to shoot that killer, he couldn't do it because he would be a Christian and it would be wrong. That would be the implication of this position. Number four, if this pacifist position is true, then every thief, every drug dealer, every murderer, every rapist should hope for a mass conversion of the police force to Christianity because then we couldn't stop them. Number five, implication number five, finally, if pacifism is true, if your family is ever attacked, the last person that you would want standing beside you would be a Christian. You would have to think to yourself, please let this be a heathen, a non-Christian, an unbeliever who has no accountability to the law of Christ so that he could help me. Now, those are a little bit tongue-in-cheek but they are logical implications. If a Christian can't help you, but a non-Christian can. And think about that on the surface. A Christian can't help you, but a non-Christian could. Brother Foy Wallace wrote this. He felt strongly about the right to self-defense and serving in the military, being a police officer. He said the idea that men who are not Christians can be soldiers and officers to protect the Christian by doing that which a Christian himself cannot do is the most convenient, conveniently selfish and cowardly doctrine ever pronounced by good men. Now you say, that's a strong statement. It is, but that's how we feel. I probably wouldn't have said it that way because I know people have moral convictions about this, but you get to a point that people feel very strongly about this. I asked the question this morning, what was the weapon that Cain used to kill Abel? And the answer is, we don't know. Now, why is that significant? Because in this first of all murders in the Bible, God did not even see fit to mention the weapon. Now, God gives a lot of details about this event, but the specific weapon that was used is not even mentioned. In fact, let me show you a description about this in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 23. The early part of Genesis chapter 4 is when the murder takes place. The latter part of that chapter, the Bible describes the great, great, great grandson of Cain. 
And it turns out that his great-great-great-grandson is a lot like Cain. His name is Lamech. The Bible says, Then Lamech said to his wives, Lamech is the great-great-great-grandson of Cain, he says, Hear my voice, wives of Lamech. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech shall be avenged seventy-sevenfold. Now, this is what I want you to get out of this. I could go through a lot of examples, and in another sermon I'll do this sometime. God was not compelled and did not see fit to even mention the weapon with which the murder was committed. But when you go through these examples, God talks a lot about behavior. He talks about the behavior that brought about the death of Abel. In fact, he says the behavior is something that is passed down through influence, I suppose, all the way down to his great, great, great grandson of Cain. That's what God talks about. It is behavior. Brethren, there is a debate going on right now in our country about gun control. And it's really symptomatic. You can turn on the news any day of the week and people are debating about gun control and you've got people on one side, you've got people on the other side. And I have to ask the question, why are we not talking about behavior? Most people probably don't remember the name of the person who's done the shooting, even though it's only been a week and a half ago. People probably have already gotten that, have already forgotten that. But what the Bible talks about is not the intricacies of the gun law. And, and I had some people come to me today and say, well, I think a person needs to be this age and a person should be excluded on this basis. And, and that's okay. Christians can disagree about that. What we cannot lose sight of is the big picture. And that is a man has to be held accountable for what he does. As we wrap this up, I want to ask this. What is it that we can do with reference to this discussion at hand? I would urge three things. Number one, we've got to realize that more legislation is not going to fix this problem. Now, again, it's not my business. I understand we've got elected people to address this. But the people who are doing these illegal things and engaging in these tragedies and, and shootings, they're not going to be stopped because we made a law. The fact is, they're already disobeying the law when they do this. Making another law is not going to fix the problem. Number two, what we need to do in this country is get back to old-fashioned parenting. I can't fix everybody's children, but what I need to do with my own children is I need to rear them with a sense of accountability for their actions. We can have swift punishment at my house, even if we don't have it, in our country. That's old-fashioned parenting. And so if my child is caught lying, I need to hold them accountable. If they cheat, I need to hold them accountable. If they don't do their chores, they're going to be accountable. Old-fashioned parenting was largely about rearing your children up with a sense of accountability and responsibility to somebody higher than themselves. Thirdly, we need to recognize that Christianity is not just a theological discussion. It is the answer. It is the answer for the world. The answer for America right now is not gun control. It's Christianity. And our leaders need to wake up to the fact about behavior. There is no book in the world that holds men more accountable 
than does the Bible. Isn't that true? Why can't our leaders see the more that we pull God out of the schools and teach children theories contrary to the existence of God, the more we're going to have these kind of problems. They can't seem to figure that out. We need Jesus because that is the answer. That is what fixes the human. And if we can fix the human by teaching that which really matters, then the problem will go away. Thank you for bearing with me today as we've had this discussion. When things like this go on in the news, it's good for children of God to be able to look to the Bible and see what does the Bible say? Where should I stand on this? What does the Word of God say on this very relevant topic? The most important topic, however, that a person will ever deal with, the most important question is what do I need to do to be right with God? And that is, you need to be a part of the church that was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. The way you do that is by obeying the gospel, hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. Maybe tonight you want to do that. We are ready to assist you. Maybe you're here tonight as a Christian and you've got public sin that you want to deal with publicly. We would count it an honor if we could go to God and pray for you this evening. Tonight, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, won't you come as together we stand and sing the invitation song.